I'm Mary Wurtson, and this is Truth Encounter, a program committed to challenging you to consider the biblical Jesus and his claims on your life. Today, as my husband Dave takes us into Revelation 4, verses 6 and following, he begins by sharing what Dr. George Peters, one of his profs at Dallas Seminary, shared with him about the focus of a local church. See if you can memorize the purpose, and then discover one of the key ingredients that Dr. Peters left out. Here's Dave. What's the purpose of the church? I'll never forget George W. Peters. He was one of these Russian believers. He was a European believer, actually from Russia. He had come over to Canada and then went down to Mexico. In fact, he told us about one time where he hid under a bed as Mexican bandits were shooting over his bed there in the house where he was. I mean, just an incredible guy. He ended up in the United States and he became one of the most powerful mission students in all of Christendom. And he analyzed the movement of the Spirit of God all over the world. Was a, just a dear teacher. One thing I remember Dr. Peters teaching me as he spiraled up the staircase was he took Acts chapter 2, verses 41 and following, and he shared that the purpose of the church, the reason we're gathered together today, is to have communion, to have intimacy with the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's about love with the God that's really there. That's what we're about. We're about relationship with the God who's really there. Now, how do you have relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? You first of all have to be born into his family, and so we have relationship with the biblical God through proclaiming the gospel. And in Acts chapter 2, Peter, the great foundational apostle, proclaimed that Christ died for our sins. He rose again, and he challenged the group to believe in Jesus. Just like many of you can remember a challenge in your life where you believed in Jesus. And if you haven't believed in Jesus, I want you to believe in Jesus right now. Even while I'm talking, open your heart to his death and his resurrection. You can do that any moment, any time. You need to let him into your life. That's being born into God's family. How does a baby in Christ grow? And Dr. George Peters said he grows through three things. And in Acts chapter 2, 41 and following, he pointed out that they continued in the apostles' teaching. And so we had a strong stress in our church, and we have a strong stress in our church on the teaching of the Word of God, which is what we're entering into now. We also pray. Because in Acts chapter 2, 41 and following, it says that the early church not only exposed themselves to the teaching of the apostles, but they also prayed. And so we're going to motivate you to learn how to pray in your private life, to learn how to pray in your public life, to learn how to continually lean upon the Lord in prayer. And then Dr. George Peter says, but there's another third ingredient, and that is the communion of the saints, the fellowship of the saints, the relationship of the saints. Just as God the Father has holy love forever and ever between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the Lord has built us not to be the Lone Ranger, not to be some isolated John Wayne, but he built us to be a family. He built us for relationships. In fact, our church really grew out of a great movement of the Spirit within the evangelical church to be committed to communion and family. Our favorite song in our early days, and we sing it often, I'm so glad I'm a part of the organization of God. I'm so glad I'm a part of the business of God. I'm so glad I'm a part of the institution of God. Is that the way it reads? No. I'm so glad I'm a part of the... Amen. Amen. 
You are family today, so get used to it. You're going to get angry with each other. You're going to be jealous of each other. You're going to have to work through relationships, but you've got to hang in there because you're blood brothers and sisters. Just like when you were a kid, you might have made a blood pact with some of your best friends. Jesus made a blood pact with you when you believed in him. Don't ever separate yourself from your brothers and sisters in Christ. Your blood brothers, based upon the most precious blood in all the universe. Amen? So we got to be family. We've got to be communion. We can't just huddle in our homes watching videos. we got to get into the messiness of relationship. And those are the three things. I taught it for years. You've got to have intimacy with the triune God through the proclamation of the gospel and then building one another up in that newfound faith through the teaching of the word, prayer, and fellowship. But I read the passage another time. It also says that they not only committed themselves to the teaching of the word, to prayer, and to fellowship, but Dr. Peters, it's interesting that Dr. Peters left this out because it's kind of been the forgotten thing. It also says that the early church continued daily praising God. It says they continue daily praising God. They worship God. And one of the things that God has done, just as I've seen movements where there was a recapturing of the Bible, some of you are raised in churches where you didn't even need to bring your Bible. And so there was a recapturing of, a, of the need for Bible teaching. There's also been movements of prayer. Some of you have been involved in movements where the, a lot of people get together and they'll pray. And you've had days of prayer. And that's the movement of the Spirit that moves us to a renewal of prayer. Dr. Gene Getz, who's a very close friend of mine, was moved by the Spirit to create fellowship Bible churches because he sensed that there was a lot of head knowledge, but there wasn't community. And so the fellowship movement began. What's been happening over the last few years is the Lord's been reawakening the importance of worship. Revelation chapter 4 is a very important scriptural foundation to that worship. And I want you to think about your own life. Like maybe you have the teaching of the word in your life. Maybe you have prayer in your life. Maybe you have fellowship in your life. But somehow this business of thanking God and praising God and singing to God just isn't that important to you. And I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 4 because as we go into heaven, and some of the daddies have come up to me this week and they shared how their kids are scared. And daddies ask, like, how can I help my kids to not be afraid? And what we need to learn to do as daddies is we need to, as our kids are growing older and they're exposed to the reality of the violence and the bloodshed and the agony of what happens on planet Earth, wars and rumors of wars and murders in high schools and all that, as our kids grow up and have to be exposed to that, how do we help them to have peace? How do we help to explain to them how God overcomes this? What the Apostle John did with the first century church is what he wants to do with us He challenges us to go with him to the throne room of God. You see, you're going to decide in your life whether you believe that everything is just happening haphazardly, whether violence just occurs kind of by probabilities. If you'll think about that, you're ultimately going to come to the point of the fact that there there just might be ultimate chaos that's ruling. Evolution, if you're just a secular evolutionist, then as you think about it, it just means that everything is impersonal anyway. It's just balls that are hitting and energy systems that are hitting. And it really doesn't make any difference anyway. But if you adopt that philosophy, you'll know deep in your soul that that doesn't work. Because there's something inside of you that says, no, it has to have meaning. There has to be relationship. And what Revelation points us to is 
the throne room. It says that you need to understand that you're living in a sphere. You're living in a matrix. You're living on a planet where things are not the way they ought to be. Where there's a great conflict, where there's a rebellion that's taking place. And this rebellion has influenced God's entire created universe. But you can go into a dimension, you can go to the ultimate throne room, and you can go to a place where it's not part of that rebellion. You can go to a place where the court of God is focused on him. And that's what Revelation chapter 4 enables us to do. Before John gets into the Antichrist, before he gets into the false prophet, before he gets into all the wars and the famines and the death that's going to come ultimately during the Great Tribulation period, he takes us to the praise and the worship of heaven. As we open up to Revelation chapter 4, in the middle of verse 6, it says, In the center around the throne were four living creatures. They were covered with eyes in front and in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. And the second had, the third had a face like a man. And the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had its six wings and was covered with eyes all around and even under his wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Whoever the, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne. Notice the emphasis again and again, the one that sits upon the throne, the one who sits on the throne. And they worship him. They adore him. They focus on him. They give their adoration to him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crown before the throne and they say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive the glory, to receive the honor, to receive the power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. As we read this passage, what the John is doing is he's painting, a, a, he's painting this beautiful visual image. It's a symbolic visual image. And he pictures for us the way that we need to respond to the throne of God. We were exposed to the, the brilliant light that was reflecting from the throne of God like a diamond flashing against an engagement ring. We were exposed to the sardius stone, which is, which is a red color mixed into this brilliant reflection, reminding us of the justice of God. But now we move away from the central throne, and now we move to four living creatures. Ezekiel chapter 1 introduces to these living creatures. They are the great archangels. They are the great cherubim. They are the great attendants to the throne of God. In Ezekiel, we see them demonstrating the mobility of God's throne as these angels are the ones that are like, just like ancient kings in Egypt or ancient kings in Babylonia would have their servants bear them upon their throne, their mobile throne cart. We have God presenting himself in almost like the spiritual cartoon, a holy cartoon. We have God presenting himself as being carried and being, in this case, being guarded. Because now the throne is set in heaven. Set in the place where things are determined. Set in the place where destiny is decided. And we have these four guards of the heavenly throne that are gathered together around him. What do they represent? They're really strange creatures. They're symbolically presented to us as having the head of a lion. 
Wouldn't it show that some of you are going to be moved in your lives to become zoologists? You're going to be moved in your life to want to go out to Africa and like Mary's always wanted to do and to work out in the jungle and you want to protect lions and everything because lions are the kings of the beast. What I want all of our young people to realize is that you study zoology, as you study biology, as you study the great systems of the wild kingdom, that's God's kingdom. God's the one that created the beauty of the lion. We worship a God that's there when the cubs are born. Most of you and I included have never seen little lion cubs born. We've never seen the moms and dads take care of them. But we worship a God who has a cherubim who represents the wild kingdom of God. And our Heavenly Father is the author of that beauty, the author of that greatness. And he is the one that one day is going to redeem it. And that's what it means. His cherubim has the head of a lion because, because his throne represents all of his creation. All of you as good Texans can understand the next cherubim who has the head of an ox. That's a domesticated animal. In the ancient world, the ox was the tractor of the ancient world. The ox was the one that plowed the field and, and made the farming possible. It was a domesticated beast. It symbolized strength. And what the angel of the cherubim of the ox is reminding us, that God the Father is over all those domesticated animals. I want all of you ranchers to know, like, at this time of the year, I love it. There's just nothing like seeing a... I know it's horrible for the cows, but it's really neat to see a blue bonnet field with brown and black and all the different Charlet cattle. Isn't that Texas for you? When you drive down 35 and see that scene repeated again and again, and we rejoice in the land, we rejoice in the cattle that we have, and we rejoice in God's provision, we need to be moved to worship. There's a cherubim who's over the domesticated animals. God's in control. If you're a rancher, you know you're dependent upon God, aren't you? God has to send the rain. He has to protect you from the wind. He has to protect you from the twists that's in nature. And when he gives you a bountiful field and he enables you to feed your cattle for another season and he gives them water in their time, I want you to be moved to worship. I want you to be a rancher, a cowboy that's focused on God because of the cherubim who worships at the living God that represents you. Because that's what the ox was in the ancient world of Israel. And I want you to realize that when you're ministering with your cowboy friends and those that are involved in agriculture, as you're, as you're working in the 4A groups, you need to do it for the glory of God. Don't divorce yourself from what we're doing when you're out there in, those, in the agricultural world. It all takes place because of the one on the throne. Amen? I want, you to, I want you to believe that. That's what's going to transform our area when we have worshipful ranchers, worshipful farmers. It also talks about the fact that one of the cherubim has the face of a man, the glory of God's creation, the one that was made in his image. And there's a cherubim that represents us. And you are the precious one in his family. You're the one uniquely created in the image of God. And you're represented by the cherubim around the throne of God. We have a special archangel that's overseeing humankind and loves us and cares for us. It also talks about the eagle that can fly swiftly. The eagle, man, the eagle's the king of the birds. And there's just nothing like seeing a bald eagle in East Texas. I saw a video the other day. One of our precious church family members actually caught an eagle, you know, attacking a, a hawk. And, you know, I always think about a hawk as being a, an invincible animal. But to watch this gigantic eagle just do mince meat with a, with a hawk shows you the grandeur of that eagle. 
Just nothing like seeing the symbol of our country flying high over the Grand Canyon. There's an archangel that's overseeing the bird kingdom. And what these cherubim represent around the throne of God is their wings represent that they're incredibly mobile. They're going into all the universe, all of the created order, and they're overseeing their eyes. The, the eyes that are under their wings and everything means that as they move, you can never get away from their gaze. Heaven's gaze is upon us. Oh, how we can thank the Lord. How do you do as parents when you have to send your kids to high school and you suddenly realize that high school might not be safe anymore? You can thank the Lord. We have a king on a throne who has the cherubim with the face of a man that's overseeing our children. And nothing can happen to us. When we get to heaven someday, God will declare to us the wondrous plan, the incredible redemptive story that, that, that he took the attack of the evil one and somehow wove it together to bring great glory to his son. Do you believe that? We don't have to weep like those who have no hope because the archangels around the throne are overseeing. They can see what's happening. And they're executing the command of God and they can effectively do that. They also worship. What do they do? As they carry out the command of God, what it says is intermittently, throughout the book, they're going to carry out the very various judgments of God against evil. But these precious, precious cherubim, when they're not executing the decrees of God, the decrees of heaven, they sing worship to the Lord. And we have one of their worship songs. You say, what does heaven sing like? What are the words to the songs? And here it is. Holy, holy, holy. God, you are the distinct one. Remember I talked to you about Michael Jordan being a holy basketball player, a one-of-a-kind basketball player, the wonder of his awesome gift, and then you multiply that a million, 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 million times, and you have the worship of heaven. I want us to learn in our private life to open our hearts to allow the Spirit of God to see the distinctiveness, the one-of-a-kindness, the holiness of God. That he's set apart, he's in a class by himself, and the triple holy, holy, holy means it's superlative. It means it's the highest holiness you can ever imagine. And one day you're going to join this heavenly choir, and when we worship together as a congregation, we need to try to enter into that. And we need to, we need to focus on our heavenly Father and focus on his utter aboveness, the fact that he's, he's in a class by himself. It says to the Lord God Almighty. The word Almighty means that he has the power to affect his decrees. He's Almighty. Satan's going to strut himself. It's himself. We're going to look in the book of Revelation. When you look at planet Earth, it looks like God is not Almighty. When Hitler was strutting himself and the Nazi armies were strutting up and down Europe, and the spirit of Antichrist rested, rested upon that fastest decree and that fastest thinking, those of you that lived through World War II, remember the agony and the fear. It looked like God wasn't on his throne. But your own young people think of Hitler as a cartoon figure. They think of him as a joke. They watch old videos of him speaking his great speeches that stirred millions in Europe, and it's just a joke now. You know why? Because the Pantocrator, the Almighty One, the Almighty Strong One, said, that's enough, Hitler. That's enough. I'm going to make the English Channel be calm so the English army can escape from you. I'm going to confound your generals and I'm going to make you almost go insane with your ego so that you won't listen to the most brilliant generals that have ever been on planet Earth. And I'm going to give those Americans and British and all that union of allies great strength and they're going to fight like tigers. And I'm going to come to the aid of my people and I'm going to give birth to the nation of Israel and all the wonder of God's redemptive plan that I don't completely understand at all but somehow, some way. 
It didn't work. You couldn't exterminate God's people. Instead, their land was born again. And they moved back home. And the wonder of what we're saying in the book of Revelation begins, the foundations begin to be laid. Today, I feel like, God, where is the Almighty? And God says, my son, trust me. Remember the throne. Remember the end of the story is what counts. And believe in me, worship me. I am, worship me as the Almighty One. Trust in me as the Almighty One. That's what worship is. How can you trust God? Because he is the one who was, and he is the one who is, and he is the one who's going to be there in the future. In other words, he is the one who's always existing. Satan has not always existed. You and I have not always existed. Every human being that struts his stuff on planet Earth has not always existed. But we have a king on the throne who lives forever. And that's why he can make it right. Because when physical life is snuffed out, he takes her into his eternal arms because he's the one who was, he's the one who is, and he was the one who will be there in the future. The Antichrist takes over planet Earth, sets himself up as the king of planet Earth. But he's not the one who was. He didn't exist in eternity past. All he had is his present. And then God says, I'm the one that's going to be present in the future. And as we close the book of Revelation, it'll just say Jesus comes riding forth in his white horse. It doesn't say there's a great battle, really, with, in essence. It just says he grabs the Antichrist, puts him away. That's the king that we serve. Nuclear energy, that's just a little tiny bit of his almightiness. Whatever that next force that we wanted to get at with the super collider, God's already got that force totally under control. Thank God for that. Because we haven't figured it out yet. But we can strut ourselves with nuclear power and, and tremendous ballistic missiles and everything. This is the king that's the great almighty, all-powerful one. We need to be awestruck before him. Part of our worship needs to be that when we see the power of nature, that we multiply it millions of times and we begin to catch the grandeur of the almighty power of God. He's the one who was and who is and who is to come. Notice how when the four living creatures worship, they move the 24 elders that we learned were the, was the next strata of angels that represent the people of God, the overseeing angels that, that are guiding and protecting Israel in the Old Testament, protecting us in the New Testament. And I want you to see how the activity of heaven, the eternal activity of heaven is the adoration, the thanksgiving focused on the throne. It says, whenever the four living creatures give worship, the 24 elders fall down before him and sit on the throne. They worship as well. And they worship the one that lives forever and ever. Notice they lay their crowns at his feet. What does that mean? It means that unlike Lucifer, remember Lucifer who used to be one of these archangels. He decided his crown was his own crown. He decided that he was the one that was going to rule. He was the one that was going to be the Almighty. It was that distinctiveness from God. It was that turning away from God. It was that separateness from God that caused Satan to become Satan. And I asked myself in my own life, Dave, how often do you separate yourself from God? How many times do I tell God, this is more important than you, God? This person, this thing, this plan, this purpose is more important. One of the great things that our young people are going to wrestle with as they grow to maturity is, is will I let God be God? Or will I live for someone else? Will I live for a boyfriend? Will I live for a job? Will I live for popularity? Will I live to make money? Will I live to get a truck? And you adults are doing the same thing. Will I live for that promotion? Will I live for that next big house? Will I live for that vacation? 
oh, I want you to capture a grander. I want you to capture, capture a glimpse of the one that you need to give your adoration to. Who you need to give your strength to. Who you need to give your thanks to. The reason you need to worship God is because your very existence, like if you're debating, should it be my boyfriend or should it be God? Who do you think makes your, your boyfriend or your girlfriend's heart tick? Who do you think gave them life? Who do you think had their life plan written down in a scroll even before they were dreamt of on planet Earth? Who do you think knows what life's going to bring? Who do you think knows the different challenges that you'll face? Do you understand that, my brothers and sisters, all of you of all ages? As I look back over my life, I see the wonder of God's hand. I think of growing into relationships, and I think of of growing into all the things. I think of the the really neat things that God did, how he led me to Mary. When Mary was living in Chicago, and I was living in New York, and who would have ever dreamt that God could have weaved it all together? But when you focus on God, when you worship God, what a neat thing it was to end up thinking I was going to go to medical school, to end up in Dallas Seminary. The wonder of ministry. Guys ask me, are you still in Midlothian? I say, yeah. I want just to tell you, it's a good plan. Worship God. Fall before him. Don't, don't fight him. Because he's the one that knows the good-looking girl that you need. He's the one that knows the, the character, the Christ-like man that you need. He's the one that knows what will be good for you. He knows that singleness is going to be a blessing for Kim. Amen? <laughs> and some of you will be called on that gift. It's about worship, my friend. When you get to know the king of Revelation 4... When you just catch a little glimpse of this one high and lifted up on the throne, you'll get things in perspective. And you'll start to, in your daily life, give him glory. Allow your heart to just express honor to him. You need to learn to do that all by yourself. You have to worship. And I have to worship. And I want to encourage you to do that. I want you to encourage to learn. I have to learn how to, how to get my heart focused on him and say, God, I... I thank you, and I honor you, and I revere you for your power. And I recognize you. I get down on my face, and I worship you. I'd encourage you in your own private, alone times, sometimes to just get down on your face, not in a mechanical way like the Islamic people do, but as a child in the courtroom of your heavenly daddy, get down on your face, literally, and worship him. Just say, God, I'm down on my face because I want to physically just act out this whole thing. Just like I'm going to do one day when I'm with you in heaven, I want to by faith acknowledge that I'm down on my face before you because I'm just struck to my knees and I'm struck to a prostrate position. For you created all things that by your will they were created. I'm thankful for that. All things were created by him. That there's not some impersonal energy that's out there. There's not some chance probabilities. In the beginning, God. And now it's God. And in the end, it's going to be God. And it's just not a nebulous God, but it's God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Amen.